Today's episode is sponsored by Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BrainsOn. Just go to Indeed.com slash BrainsOn right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BrainsOn. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You're listening to BrainsOn, where we're serious about being curious. Brains On is supported in part by a grant from the National Science Foundation. Ugh, I really need a good laugh. I wish I could just tickle myself, but that never works. Nope. There's got to be another way. Ah, I got it. A fake mustache. Uh-huh. <sighs> Nothing. That usually makes people laugh. Oh, how about... Come here, you banana cream pie with extra whipped cream. A pie in the face? Never not funny. Okay, three, two... (gasps) Messy? Uh, Delicious? Mm? But no laughs. Also, note to self, try a little pickle juice in the next pie. This one is a little too... Mm, banana Wait, bananas! The old banana peel slip and fall. That never fails. Okay. Just toss this peel on the ground and take a few steps back until I can't see the banana peel. Now, <laughs> walk like I don't have a care in the world. Hey, Mark. Huh? Ooh, careful, Whoa! there's a... Ooh, the bag of flour. <laughs> Oh, yikes, Mark. Are you okay? Oh, hey. Hey, Manica. Yeah, uh, I'm fine. Well, whatever you're doing in here, it sure is funny. Really? Yeah, just look at yourself in the mirror. I mean, you're wearing a fake mustache, you've got pie all over your face, and you're covered in flour. (laughs) I do look kind of ridiculous. (laughs) Look, there's crust in my hair. (laughs) I've got crust dandruff. (laughs) Tasty, though. (laughs) Oh, thanks, Mark. I really needed a good laugh. Welcome to Brains On. I'm Molly Bloom, and my co-host today is Coco from Minneapolis. Hi, Coco. Hi, Molly. How are you? I'm good. It's a pleasure to talk to you today. So this episode is a double feature of giggles and adorableness. I think all of us could use a cuteness overload right about now. (laughs) Yes, I definitely could. So first, we're talking tickling. So Coco, I want to know, are you ticklish? I'm kind of ticklish, but not really. Have you always not been really ticklish? Uh, no. So tell me, when did you start being less ticklish? Uh, maybe when, like, I learned more things to, like, not be ticklish, I guess. Uh, So tell me what things you learned to not be ticklish. Uh, I tried to hold my breath. 
So you found that when you hold your breath, you don't really get tickled when someone tickles you. Yeah. You can't really laugh when you're holding your breath, so. Huh. So when you were younger, did you, like, like being tickled or not? Sometimes I liked being tickled, but sometimes I didn't. Yeah. I do not like being tickled. I have not learned the tricks you have, and I don't (laughs) care for it. We've gotten a lot of questions about tickling, but there's one tickling-related question that a lot of you want to know the answer to. Why don't you laugh when you tickle yourself? Why, when other people tickle you, it tickles, but when you tickle yourself, it doesn't. Why do you laugh when other people tickle you, but you don't laugh when you tickle yourself? Our question is, why can't we tickle ourselves? Yeah! That was Grace from Halifax, Nova Scotia, Amelia from Wales, Clayton and Marcus from Toronto, and Caitlin and Henry from Clarendon Hills, Illinois. And we had a different kind of producer investigate this for us. I'll just say it. She's a skin receptor, so a nerve cell in your skin that senses touch. Molly, Coco, I'm so glad you called. I have been wondering this same thing for ages. Why can't we tickle ourselves? I had a hunch who was behind this. We are so excited to hear about it, but can you introduce yourself first? Oh, of course. I'm Marley. I'm a skin receptor. I sit in your skin and get signals from the outside world. Maybe tomato sauce splashes onto your face when you're slurping spaghetti, or a fly lands on your ear. Skin receptors like me sense those things. Then we tell the nerves we're connected to. We send a message down the line. That's our job. Okay? That's our job. But me? I get curious about things. You might call me inquisitive, and I've noticed something pretty interesting. When I send messages about touches you've done to yourself, so yes, tickling yourself, or self-tickle as I like to call it, those messages, they seem to get a little lost. Not that you can't feel them. You can, but the strength of the message does not get through. So, like you, Keaton and Henry, I needed to know why. First, I called a friend. He's a nerve cell in the spinal cord. Since he's farther up the chain, I thought he'd be able to help. Oh, hi, Marley. How's it going? Listen, Kevin, I'm looking into some messages that I suspect are being intercepted. So when I send a message about a touch, do you know where it goes? Well, you're a skin receptor. You sense the outside world first. You send a signal to a nerve. And nerves are basically strings of special cells that send messages throughout your body. Then eventually, most nerves lead to the spinal cord. That's where I am. It's a big bundle of nerves. It runs up the back through the backbones. Any way of losing a signal there? Everyone I know is pretty much just passing things along. So millions of receptors like me send messages to other nerves. Those nerves send messages to you all at the spinal cord. Then what? From the spinal cord, messages go straight to the brain. What kind of messages do you think are being lost? Kevin, I can't tell you what I'm working on just yet. I have to go, but this is so helpful. Thank you so much. I promise to fill you in later. Sounds to me like signals stay loud and clear until they get to one place, the brain. 
like I said, I had a hunch. I thought the brain might be behind this. But who to ask? The brain is notoriously busy. No time to talk. I went to the next best thing. A person with a really smart brain. Her name is Martha Flanders. I found her in a neuroscience lab at the University of Minnesota Medical Minnesota School. Medical School. I study the somatosensory system, which, which means um, how we get information from receptors in the skin to the brain. Perfect. We have to have some sort of sense all the time of what's going on out there. Okay. The sense of what's going on out there. Me and other receptor cells, we provide that information by sending signals about what a body is feeling, which is obviously very important. And your brain keeps track of the kind of sensory input you should expect from your own movement. Aha! So there's a difference between self-movement and movement from other places, for the brain at least. I was under the impression that all touches, or sensory inputs, carried the same weight. A tickle is a tickle. It is to me, at least, as a skin receptor. But that's maybe not true for the brain. When you tickle yourself, your nervous system has canceled out the sensory input that was produced by you. Canceled? But why would the brain cancel our valuable information? Because your nervous system expected that pattern of sensory input because you produced it. So, a self-tickle, to me, a skin receptor, it still seems like news since I had no part in creating the movement. The brain, on the other hand, it does anticipate the self-tickle since it commanded the hand to tickle in the first place. And so the brain intercepts the message coming from me. It's the brain that's quieting the signals of touches you do to yourself. Just as I suspected. Apparently, canceling out self-tickles is a way to keep you alert. It helps you pay attention to touches that are important, like bugs landing on you or other people bumping into you. In the end, tickling yourself is predictable for your brain. It's not important. But if someone else tickles you, you've had no way to anticipate that. And tickling is such a, you know, um, an interesting signal that you would have no way to see that coming. Well, as a skin receptor cell, I have no way to see anything coming, not just because I have no eyes, but also because the brain is keeping all kinds of information to itself. But... I don't have time to stew over this. I have to call Kevin and fill him in. I'll talk to you all later. So tickling yourself isn't really a thing, but tickling other people definitely is. Hello, my name is Amelia from Green, Ohio, and my question is, why do we laugh when we're tickled? We wanted to know more about that. So we called up Susan Labeco. She studies how our brains handle pain at the University of California at San Diego. Welcome, Susan. Hi, Coco. So I have a couple questions for you. Go for it. First one is, how does pain connect with laughter or tickling? Our skin has receptors that feel a lot of different sensations. So one of them is light touch, like a tickle, a feather, something brushing against your skin. And another one is for pain. And these receptors are all different from each other. 
and they send information to the brain so you know what you're feeling. And then once it gets to the brain, all of these things are sent to an area called the somatosensory cortex. And this part of the brain helps us make sense of all of this incoming information from our skin and even like the inside of our nose, anything where we're feeling a touch. But the difference when you're being tickled versus when you're feeling pain is another part of the brain is activated. And when you're tickled, an area called the anterior cingulate gyrus is also activated. And this part of the brain is important for pleasure and positive reinforcement, which means if we do something that we like, we keep doing it. And so tickling activates this part of the brain, and it tells us that this is a good stimulus, and it's not something that we need to be scared of, and that causes us to laugh. So what signals do neurons send to the brain when you're getting tickled? Yeah, so this goes back to those receptors that are in the skin. So those are neurons, and neurons are our brain cells, but also the cells that make up the nerves that go to the rest of our body. And they send what are called action potentials back to the brain through a relay of neurons. And so these are little electrical signals that tell the cells that they're active, and they make the next cell active, and so on and so on. And so these little electrical activity in certain neurons are what allows our brain to understand what's going on, you know, in an area so far away, like our fingertips or our feet. That's very cool. Why are some parts of the body more ticklish than others? This is a really interesting question. We would want to say, well, maybe there's more of these receptors in areas that are ticklish, but that's not always true. Think of your fingertips. We have really sensitive fingertips. They feel a lot of things very well, but they're not actually very ticklish. So some scientists think that the areas of our body that are the most ticklish, like our underarms and our feet um, and like our stomach, are actually the areas of our body that we need to protect the most. And some neuroscientists think that tickling is a way for us to learn which parts of our body need to be protected in case, you know, a threat came into play. But since we're kids and we're learning to do these things, it's more of a fun thing. But eventually it'll help us. Can you train yourself not to be ticklish? I am a pretty ticklish person, so I hope that it's a yes. One other related question that is really important to understanding this is why can't we tickle ourselves? And this is because there's an area of the brain called the cerebellum that helps us plan and execute our motor movements. And so when you're trying to tickle yourself, your cerebellum realizes that your arm is moving towards your underarm or your foot or something, and it cancels out the ticklish signals that are coming from that area because it's saying, oh, I'm doing this myself. So one strategy for being less ticklish is if someone's coming in trying to tickle you, you can actually put your hand on their hand and it helps your brain realize there's something coming. I know where it's coming from. And then maybe you'll feel a little less ticklish when it actually happens. Wow. Just wow. <laughs> I know. It's a really cool field to think about, how your brain is doing all of these things. Yeah. How have people studied tickling? Probably the very first thing is we did a lot of observation. So scientists looked at people, different types of people, how ticklish they were, where they were ticklish. And then there's also been other really cool studies. We can look at primates like monkeys and apes. And then also one more recent study has shown that even rats like to be tickled. So we've been able to also look at animals to understand how tickling works. 
What do like rats and like those other animals do when they're being tickled? They actually laugh and they enjoy the experience. They run around in their little enclosure. They come back to the experimenter's hand because they want to be tickled again. But it's really interesting because they do seem to laugh the way that a human does. Thank you, Susan. Yeah, thank you, Coco. Now, a tickle for your eardrums. It's the... Coco, you are very ready for this mystery sound, I know, because that stinger we just heard, the mystery sound, stinger that plays every time we do the mystery sound, that is actually your voice. Yes, it is. How old were you when you recorded that? I think I was like four. Oh my goodness. That was a long time ago. And we've known you for so long because your dad, Mark Sanchez, works on this show. Yes, he does. Are you ready for the mystery sound? Yes, I am. All right, here it is. Okay, I have like three guesses. Okay, tell me your three guesses. A radio, um, somebody running, or an airplane. Okay, a radio, somebody running, or an airplane. I like those are very vast and diverse answers. Well, you're going to have another chance to hear it and guess again in just a bit. Before we close out the tickle-tastic part of this episode, one more thing. It has to do with if you get tickled, like a lot, a lot, a lot. And you laugh really, really, really hard. You have to start to pee. Or you might even pee. Here's what's up with that phenomenon. Hi, I am Rena Malik, and I am a doctor that takes care of the kidneys, the ureter, and the bladder. So basically everything that makes urine is something that I take care of. And I'm the plumber of all that, so I fix anything that's wrong with the plumbing. Here are the basics of that plumbing. So a bladder is like a big balloon that's inside your pelvis, right in the lower part of your belly, and that's where you hold urine. So when you drink and eat, your body processes all the fluid and all the nutrients that go in your body. They go through your kidneys, which are these two little bean-like organs on either side of your back, and then they go down these little tubes called ureters, and the urine goes down those tubes and into this balloon-like structure, this sac, essentially, and that's what holds your pee. And so that's called the bladder. And the bladder is connected to the outside of your body by the urethra, so that's where you pee from. That's called your urethra. And inside the urethra, there are what's called sphincters, and these are muscles that contract or squeeze to keep your urine in. So, to recap, your pee starts in your two kidneys, then Boosh! It travels down to two tubes called the ureters. Then, splash! Two tubes dump the urine into the bladder, where it waits until, zoom! The sphincter opens and the urine flies through the urethra and into the world. You actually also have other sphincter muscles that have to do with pooing and swallowing. Different muscles, same name, sphincter. Anyway, your brain helps squeeze these muscles to keep the brakes on and stop you from peeing if you don't want to. And when your bladder gets full, it sends an urge to your brain, which takes off the brakes. That usually happens when you're in the bathroom, ready to pee. So that's a normal situation. 
in a tickle situation. When you're laughing, you actually increase the pressure in your belly. So you're laughing so hard that increases the pressure on your bladder or that sack of urine. And at the same time, your sphincter can weaken a little bit or that tight muscle can relax a little bit, allowing some urine to leak out. So there you go. Laughter kind of pushes on your bladder. So it's a good idea to take a break from tickling to take some of that pressure off your bladder. Spare shorts never hurt anybody either. Hey, we know a lot of you are home from school, which means you're getting creative to pass the time. So we want to know, what's the most fun thing you've done during your quarantine? Have you found a really cool way to study science? Or baked an epic cake? Or picked up a new skill, like learning duck calls? (laughs) Oh, good duck calls, Coco. Record yourself telling us about one cool thing you've done and send it to us at brainson.org slash contact. It could land in an episode. Just like this question. My name is Tate from St. Paul, Minnesota. And my question is, can a moon have a moon? We'll answer that at the end of the show in the moment of um. And I'll read the latest names to get added to the Brains Honor Roll. So keep listening. You're listening to Brains On from American Public Media. I'm Molly. And I'm Coco. It's time for us to change gears from tickle tempo to cuteness hyperdrive. Let's look at some cute stuff to get ready. So Coco, you recently got a new puppy, which seems like a really good place to start. What is her name and what does she look like? She is a golden doodle and her name is Ella. I'm going to show you a picture. Oh, it's a little fluff. <laughs> look at the little fluffer face. Oh. She's so cute. Well, I think we are definitely connected to our inner cutometers now. Yep, ready to carry on and answer this listener question. Hi, my name is Samuel. And my name is Adrian. And we are from Juana Diaz, Puerto Rico. And our question is, why do people find cute things cute? Excellent question, Samuel and Adrian. We all know cute things when we see them. But why do we react to a baby that way? <laughs> and not a grown-up. Cuckoo gaga? Or a kitten, but not a flower. The answer seems to be in evolutionary biology. That's psychologist Dr. Sandra Pimentel. And she explained that the reason we find some things cute and not others is hardwired into us. So if we think about evolution, right, um, sort of our goal as a species, as humans, is to survive and to sort of pass on our genes. And the way we pass on our genes is by having babies. But you may have noticed that babies can't do much on their own. They need us to take care of them and keep them alive. That's where the cuteness comes in. By finding things cute, we're more likely to want to take care of them and protect them. They're more likely to look vulnerable and kind of, you know, remind us, like, hey, take care of me. (laughs) I'm helpless here. So it's no surprise, then, that the features that we humans think of as cute are the features that babies have. These features were dubbed kinchin shema by the psychologist who first studied them. Which, by the way, can we say that word a few times? Kinchin shema. Kinchin shema. It's a mouthful. Anyway, the features of Kinshin Shema are... Big head relative to body size. Larger forehead. 
large eyes, round cheeks, small chin, and a small nose. In other words, a baby face. And these features appear in baby animals, too, like puppies, kittens, bunnies, all elicit this sound. So how does our brain make us like looking at cute things? It rewards us with a chemical called dopamine. That can make us feel intensely happy. There's a study that had people looking at cute pictures, and what they found is that when people are looking at these cute pictures, their brain releases dopamine, and that's the same neurochemical, brain chemical that gets released when we have you know, something that we really enjoy eating. And that happens when we see cute pictures too. So our brain is sort of sending this message that, yeah, this feels good, this is pleasing, you know, keep at it, keep looking at these cute things. Sandra said there are other studies that show our brains want to give cute things extra attention over non-cute things. Since our brains like cute things so much, it makes sense that these characteristically cute features, these kinshin shema, show up in pop culture a lot, too. We see this stuff all the time. Think about Mickey Mouse or Hello Kitty. Both have rounded features, big heads, large eyes, and lots of people find them pretty darn cute. Okay, fellas! The Japanese word for cute is kawaii. It is everywhere. Kawaii has inundated Japanese culture. I talked to Ryuta Nakajima. He's an artist who currently lives in Duluth, Minnesota, and is originally from Japan. He told me that kawaii characters have the same traits we've been talking about. Big head, big eyes, little nose, rounded features. It really started to take off after World War II, but Ryuta sees it going back even farther than that. The tradition of this Japanese cute thing has probably go back way back to this scroll of a a rabbit and a frog. Uh, doing sumo wrestling. So I think there's a sort of a longing and desire for something that's funny and cute and that will allow you to forget about the hardship in life. Many companies have kawaii mascots, as do cities and regions. There are kawaii versions of eggs, towers, and flowers. And the famous poop emoji. That's kawaii, too. Anything can be turned into kawaii. That's the amazing thing about it. Some of the best-known kawaii characters are from Sanrio, like Hello Kitty. And then there is... No, every single Pokemon character has a kawaii quality built into it. That is a lot, at least 50-some years of uh, Japanese anime engineering. It's not an accident those characters look so desirable. Why Pikachu looks so desirable. Pika, Pika. Pikachu. Think about that. Pokemon are engineered by top-notch talent just to make you go, aww. And because cute things demand our attention, these cute things are often used as a marketing tool to sell us stuff. There's a ton of psychology in marketing, right? We know this. And so these things are usually not by accident. And what's going to make things more likely for people to buy them, whether with money or buy them with their time? So companies might use cute characters to market their products or make the products cuter themselves. So cute can also be cunning when used as a marketing strategy. Now, I have something else I want you to help me with. I want you to think of the cutest puppy, kitten, or baby you've ever seen. Now, what sound do you want to make when you think of that cuteness? Is it more like an aww, or is it something like, oh, I just want to eat you up. I want to take a bite out of you. You're so cute. I think it's more of like a mix of the first one and the second one. Mm, So you have both. Well, those are both 
totally normal reactions to cuteness, but why? Why do we go, aw, or want to bite cute things? What is that about? Dr. Oriana Aragon from Clemson University wondered the same thing. I was watching late night television and there was an actress on there and she was talking about this really cute puppy that she saw. I don't know if I just want to squeeze something. Okay. And like, just... And she was gritting her teeth and clenching her hands into fists and making like snarling faces when she was talking about the cute puppy. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting. If you looked at that on the surface, it doesn't look like something you would show on your face when looking at something cute. And I talked with um, my dad about it on the phone. And he said, well, but you got to think about, you know, grandmas and grandpas will pinch a baby's cheeks too and say, oh, you're so cute. I want to eat you up. And I thought, wow, you know, you're right. That's, that's different. And uh, I'm a researcher, a psychologist by training, and I study emotions and how people express emotions. And so when I saw that and it really occurred to me that it seemed sort of an odd reaction. I decided that that was something that I was going to study. And this cute aggression, the desire to bite, squeeze, or eat something because it is so cute, is a common emotion. There are phrases to describe this feeling in all sorts of different languages. French. Mignon a croquer. Greek. Fasifal. Polish. Jesteś tak słodki, że chciałbym cię zjeść. Vietnamese. Jej tungwa tai mungang. Italian. Da strapazzare. Czech. Muchlat. Dutch. Hij is om op te eten. And finally. Gigil. That last one is Tagalog, the language spoken in the Philippines. It's a phrase that means the gritting of teeth and the urge to pinch or squeeze something that is unbearably cute. It's one of those excellent words that says in one what takes us many to say in English. So even though you might say, you're so cute I could eat you up, and you might grit your teeth and clench your fists, you're not actually feeling aggression. You're just expressing it. This is called dimorphous expression when you're expressing something different than what you're feeling. The same thing, dimorphous expression, is happening when you cry when you're happy or laugh when you're nervous. The same thing is also happening when you make this sound. Aww. And it comes with a pronounced frown, actually like a sad face. And it's another dimorphous expression. So when you see something cute, you're filled with positive feelings, but they can come out looking like aggression or sadness. Let's say a tennis athlete scores a victorious point on the court, they might clench their fist and make a growling, snarling face and go, yeah, and express aggression for their happiness. Or they might crumple down and start crying if it's the end of the match and just release and, and you'll see tears of joy. Again, dimorphous expression. So why does this dimorphous expression happen? Why can't we just smile and look happy when we're happy. We have some indication that when people do express this way, that they come down from that really strong emotion a little better. Um, so it seems like it might help to regulate emotion, meaning help people to control their emotions. So it's possible these dimorphous expressions help us deal with overwhelming emotions. But there's still more research to be done. Oriana can say that people who have dimorphous expressions recover more quickly from extreme emotions. But she can't say if the dimorphous expression is the cause of the quick recovery. Or if people who do that just happen to recover faster anyway. Oriana is excited to keep researching these reactions, these dimorphous expressions, to understand them more. 
as a psychologist, I think about all sides, right? So I wonder also, what is that baby thinking? Because they encounter these little snarling faces <laughs> of people looking at them who think they're adorable. And babies are soaking up information. I wonder if in some way it gives babies an idea that those faces can come about in a playful way. I wonder if it educates babies in any way about emotion expression. So next time you go, aww, or want to nibble on a baby's cheeks or cry at a wedding or laugh when you're nervous, know that you're dimorphously expressing yourself. Expressing a different emotion than you're actually feeling. Brains, brains, brains. Now, Coco... Back to the mystery sound. Are you ready to hear it again? Yes, I am ready. Let's hear it. Okay, Coco, last time you had a lot of different thoughts about what it might be. What are you thinking now? So the same things... And maybe, like, in a video game, picking up stuff, maybe. Like that's a sound from a video game of someone picking something up? Yeah. Okay. I like the guess. Here is the answer. Okay. So the sound you heard just now is a rat's laughter when rat was being tickled. And actually, this is ultrasound. That means it's so high that humans cannot hear so the frequency is converted to lower pitch so that we can hear. So that's a cute little rat laugh. Wow. Shinpei Ishiyama is a neuroscientist who studies brains and fun, and he does that by watching how rats react when they get tickled. Rat tickles have a lot in common with human tickles. They have their own kind of laughter. It's pretty obvious they're having fun. And based on their laughter and brain scans, rats also feel ticklish just before tickling starts. They anticipate being tickled just like we do. Just like a lot of people, rats resist tickling while it's happening, then come back for more when it ends. Shimpei says it's really hard to know why rats or people are ticklish, but he's going to keep looking into it, and he has one idea to start out. And we believe that ticklishness is a brain's trick to make us have fun more. We can't tickle ourselves because we always know it's coming. But tickling from someone else probably will make you laugh and it might help you bond. Tickles and laughter might also push on your bladder, so watch out. Cute things have features in common, like big eyes and round cheeks. Our love of cuteness helps remind us to take care of little kids. And cuteness might make you feel one thing and express another. That's it for this episode of Brains On. It was produced by Mark Sanchez, Manika Wilhelm, Sandin Totten, and Molly Bloom. We had production help from Ruby Guthrie and Christina Lopez and engineering help from John Miller. Special thanks to Rosie DuPont, Alex Flood, John Collins, Catherine Reggio, Tom Van Dyke, Chrissy Pease, Nancy Wynn, Now Wynn, Daniela Roveda, Julia Makayova, Yana Rezakova, and Nefeli Neyamanataki. Now before we go, it's time for the moment of um... Can a moon have a moon? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, my name is Shantanel Nava, but I go by Shawnee for short. And I am a fourth year astronomy graduate student at Harvard. And I specialize in exoplanet research. So um, just like Earth, 
here on Earth, we orbit the sun. When we look out in the night sky and we see all those stars out there, they all have planets too. And so those are what I study. I actually had to do a little bit of thinking about this and a little bit of research myself because my initial um, response or sort of thought was, yeah, sure, why not? I, I think a moon could have a moon, but we haven't actually observationally seen any moons that have their own moons. So in, in our own solar system or looking at exoplanet systems, which we haven't even, with exoplanet systems, we haven't found any moons, but in our own solar system, we're pretty sure that none of our moons have their own moons. That being said, there's really no reason to think that, um, you know, a moon couldn't have some other smaller rock orbiting it. And that's what a moon's moon would be, just another rock orbiting that moon, just like the moon is orbiting its planet. Um, another thing I'll say about, about a moon orbiting a moon is it would have a very small signal that would be very difficult to detect relative to, um, say, a planet signal or even a moon signal, because if it's a moon orbiting a moon, it's going to be that much smaller. Um, and so that might be another potential reason why we haven't detected any of these things yet, is just that it would be a very small signal. Um, um, um. I'm so happy to be in the orbit of these wonderful listeners. It's time for the Brains Honor Roll. These are the brilliant people who share their mystery sounds, questions, ideas, and drawings with us. Claire from Mississauga, Ontario. Natalie from Kansas City, Missouri. Pablo from Seattle. Teo from Barcelona, Spain. Karsten from Texas City, Texas. London from Nashville. Cora Ann from Fullerton, California. Michael from Shanghai, China. Gavin from Prescott, Wisconsin. Batia and Gabriela from Houston. Matthias from England. Kessler from London, Ontario. Carter from Calgary, Alberta. Emmeline from Bristol, United Kingdom. Zachary from Charlotte, North Carolina. Zayden from Sarasota, Florida. Violet from Tampa, Florida. Arturo from Minneapolis. Emma from Hong Kong. Carmine and Luca from from Medina, Ohio, Nathan from Denver, James from Columbia, Maryland, Nova and Jude from Shore Acres, British Columbia, Sam from Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, Elise and Nora from Ashland, Wisconsin, Mila from Chester, Virginia, Lauren and Nathan from Singapore, Winnie from Portland, Oregon, Ingrid from St. Paul, Minnesota, Jacob from Asheville, North Carolina, Reese from Cape Town, South Africa, Pascal from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Rhett from Toll House, California, Otis from Victoria, British Columbia, Gianna from Pasadena, California, Dominic from Novato, California, Willem from Asheville, North Carolina, Sequoia from Portland, Oregon, Mason from Gibsonville, North Carolina, Brooke from Coon Rapids, Minnesota, Corbin from Denver, Mobius, Seamus, and Rio from Marimbula, Australia, John from Dallas, Mateo from Albuquerque, New Mexico, Jenny from Beijing, China, Eliza from Canberra, Australia, Aiden from Gujarat, India, Stellan from Sydney, Australia, Ash from Iowa, Braden from Cartier, Manitoba, Oliver and Harry from Sydney, Australia, Emma from Louisville, Kentucky, Charles from Manchester, Iowa, Anya from Boston, Matilda from Australia, Claire and Alex from Ann Arbor, Michigan, and Eli Peter and James from DuPont, Washington. Brains On will be back soon with more answers to your questions. Thanks for listening.